Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora, this is part of a series of podcasts and video documentaries on the New Zealand wars, which also include episodes on the Northern War and the First Taranaki War. You can find them wherever you found this podcast or just search for New Zealand Wars on the RNZ website. I mihi ana te kia koutou. Big thank you to New Zealand On Air. Kia ora, ko William Ray tēnei. This is the final episode in a three-part series, The New Zealand Walls, The Story of Tainui. In our previous episode, we heard how the war for Waikato began. We started with the crossing of the Mangatawhiri. In total, there were about 18,000 troops on the, on the Crown side involved in the invasion of Waikato. Then the Battle of Rangiriri. The cannons firing from the river, as well as the troops coming on the land, had never been encountered in the Waikato before. And finally, the tragedy of Rangiaufia. It's much, much more than just being a war, a fight, a battle. This is a pahuatanga, it's an atrocity. This episode, we'll hear how the war ended. Riwi Maniapoto must have been in shock late in the summer of 1864 as he made his way towards Mangatauteri, a sacred mountain of Waikato. Days earlier, he'd been leading the defence of Paterangi. Those defences had been Lewi's masterpiece, the strongest fortifications ever seen in Aotearoa. The British had shelled his pa on and off for three days, and Māori had described it as Momopodu, a waste of gunpowder. But then the news arrived. The British had snuck around Paterangi in the night, attacking Rangiaufia, burning houses and killing women, old people and children. Riwi and his followers rushed back, but it was too late. The best they could do was to make a stand against the British at an old pa on the Haerini Ridge. Here's Ngāti Maniapoto historian Kafia Murahi. Remember when he talks about Rewi Maniapoto, he calls him Manga. Obviously, after Rangiaufia, there are a lot of emotions running very high. Um, all of the Kingitanga uh, people heard what had happened, and all of those along the coast as well. And our people really needed to vent, I believe, themselves 
and do something quite significant. So a stand was made at um, Haerini. General Cameron's artillery pounded the Haerini Ridge while Riwi fought side by side with Wurumu Tamihana, the kingmaker. Yeah, this was a pivotal moment in Tamihana's life. He was a hardcore Christian and deeply committed to pacifism. Yeah, I mean, we're well into the Waikato War here, and until Rangiaufia, he hadn't actually taken up arms and fought personally. They call him the peacemaker as well as the kingmaker. He later said... For the first time my hand struck, my anger being great about my dead, murdered and burnt with fire at Rangiaufia. It wasn't very well thought through. A lot of our people were wounded, and a number of them shot. And in fact, um, Munga's brother was wounded there. A few years later, he died from his wounds. So it was a, a um, an opportunistic attempt to, I think, let off steam and to show the colonial forces that what they had done was not um, acceptable. Eventually, though, Rewi and Tamihana were forced to retreat. They watched on as the British looted and burned Rangiaufia for the second time. They did the same at Kihikihi, Rewi Maniapoto's hometown. Tamihana rushed back to his pa on Maunga Tautari, just in case it was the next target of the British. Rewi stayed around Rangiaufia to gather his people, then travelled east to catch up with Tamihana a couple of days later. The mission was to go and see uh, a link up with Wirimu Tamihana, uh, make a, uh, a plan for phase two or the last phase of the defence. Rewi had scouts out all over the area. They were gathering intelligence on the British forces, information which would be critical for planning the next phase of the war. As one of these scouts walked out of the bush, Rewi waved him over to make his report. Munga received word that a group, a large contingent from uh, Tuhue, um, Tuwharetua and Rokoa Te Kohera had gathered at and we were wanting to engage with him to discuss um, some important matters. Rewi must have been worried about delaying his meeting with Wirimu Tamihana, but these were important allies of the Kingitanga. They come all the way from Te Uriwera to support their allies in Waikato. They had to be heard out. And they really wanted to engage directly with the troops. They didn't want to take their weapons back all the way to Tuhue without being fired. Um, Te Pairata was there from Ngāti to Kohera. He was adamant that... Uh, if, well, he was adamant that this is the time and the place. Rewi's own followers agreed. They were furious at the attack on their villages, and they suggested holding their ground at a pa called Orako. The Battle of Orako will become one of the most famous in the history of Aotearoa. Yeah, definitely. It was the subject of New Zealand's first ever locally produced film all the way back in 1925. It's called um, Rewi's Last Stand. Let us go by the fortune of war. If we are to die, let us die in battle. <laughs> 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 
But of course, Riwi never wanted to make a stand at Orako. You have to understand why that's the case. This is his land. He knows the lay of the land. He knows where the good places are and the not good places are. <laughs> you know. Um, second thing is that wasn't his mission. He was determined to meet with Wirimu Tamihana and to do something less opportunistic but more systematic. Tuoi had um, a number of um, matakita with them, seers, to help with their decision-making. The seers had seen, you know, great things to happen, uh, it's going to be a great war, uh, we're going to win this particular engagement. He said, well, we shall see. So Rewi and his people went with Tuhoi to Orako. Mm, but from early on, it was clear Rewi had been right. This wasn't the place to fight the British, and General Cameron was quick to seize on the strategic mistake. All the colonial and imperial troops arrived on the scene before the power was finished. Not only was the power not finished, uh, the logistical situation was absolutely dire because they hadn't uh, been able to secure um, sufficient ammunition, absolutely insufficient water. The only food they had was potatoes and kumara, pumpkins, and the peaches from the peach trees. I can't remember if it's actually in season, but very little kai. So your ability to withstand a a multi-day siege is very limited. What's more, the way the land was shaped around Orako made it easy for the British to surround the pa. They set up artillery positions to pound the unfinished trenches. So unfortunately, all of these lemons came into, <laughs> came into a feat where they all came together to create a disastrous tactical situation. Worse, it wasn't just fighting men at Orako. You know, up to a third of the people inside the pa were women and children. Here's Ngāti Apakura historian Dr Tom Raw. He's also the Associate Professor of Indigenous Studies at Waikato University. We're often asked, how come there were children in the park? And we have this family story again of uh, our Tupuna Ripeka with her baby in swaddling, not even a toddler, taking her baby into the pa. And we're asked, how come? And we say, Rangiaofia was the example. It was supposed to be safe. We're safe for my baby. The only safe place for my baby is in my arms. siege lasted three days. Yeah, the defenders, they ran out of food and water and finally ammunition. But on the par were peach trees and they used peach stones as bullets. I actually heard one story from a historian that sometimes 
the British soldiers would get hit by a shot and they'd think, oh, I'm dead. <laughs> and that and, was a peach stone. Yeah, they'd open their, their vest and they'd have a big bruise because they got hit by a peach stone and not by a lead bullet. Just tricking. Yeah. Eventually, General Cameron signals a ceasefire. He sent a message demanding that Riwi surrender. The reply that Riwi sent back is one of the most famous quotes in Māori history, possibly New Zealand history. You see it everywhere. It's on T-shirts and caps and hats. It's at all the protest rallies. Friend, we will fight on forever and ever and ever. For Kafia Murahi, this is a phrase which still has really deep meaning. It symbolises something better than just the words themselves. Uh, back then it meant, you know, we are physically at war with you and we will not surrender. I think if we look at that term now, it is a legacy entrenched in the notion of uh, struggle for your rights, struggle for the treaty, for the whakaputanga, struggle for your humanity, to ensure that our grandchildren will no longer have to contend with being slaves, uh, constitutional slaves, um, legislative slaves of a regime that is not of our making, that does not represent who we are, that does not articulate our dreams and aspirations into the future, and that is a struggle for our freedom, and it's an ongoing struggle. When a second message came from General Cameron suggesting the women and children, you know, leave the park, go somewhere safe, there was another famous response. This one from a young noble woman, Ahumai Te Pairata. If the men die, the women and children must also die. Pretty full on. The defenders fought back two more British assaults, but by this point, everyone could see the situation was hopeless. Like we said, they'd run out of ammunition, water, food. On the last day, two, three o'clock in the afternoon, they made a break through the defensive lines. They moved in disciplined fashion. They did not run screaming and yelling. They broke through the lines to the south of the position. It's a five-kilometre walk to the Punya River. And it is in that, over that um, five kilometres, that many of our people were killed. I mean, there are just so many stories from this escape. Kafia Murahi himself takes his name from one of the tūpuna who was killed running from Orako. Murahi is a shortened form of the phrase te mura o te ahi, which means in the heat of the battle. The 
during the uh, retreat from the, the Pa, Porneki and his son Nikiti, or Maitupuna, they were with the formation. And Nikiti, the son, um, he was shot. He fell back, was wounds, he couldn't get up and walk and continued to move forward. His father, Porneke, who was in the formation, saw his son fall. So he pulled back and went to, to his son. And he could see him bleeding and there's nothing much else that he could do for him. The cavalry and the soldiers were advancing at some pace and he knew that you know, um, there's no way out for him. So Porneke began to sing his Puruparaki to his son. And they were both killed there. Luckily, young Nikiti had a son at the time of the war, of the battle, and his name was Remi. So a number of years after the battle, Remi's Tupuna Rewi called him in and he changed his name from Remi Poneke to Temurahi in memory of the battle and Temura Otahi, where they fell, his parents fell. And it wasn't just men who were shot running from Orako. Tiahu Mai Pairata, the one who gave that famous quote, she was shot and wounded four times. And she was one of the lucky ones because she made it out alive because plenty of the others were murdered. It's a big word, murdered, but, you know, the, some of the accounts are is that they were hacking them down as they were hiding in the caves and swamps and things. Mm. Um, Gustavus von Temsky, we talked about last episode, talks about this in quite heroic terms, sort of talking about how he and his men did so well in pursuing these people. They began to drop under fire very fast. Our wind and stamina began to tell after the first three miles. Many a lagger was shot after having given us the last desperate shot of his barrel. For six miles we followed our prey. The last natives were three or four trotting along the top of a distant ridge. Signs of a declining day and a bugle sounding the return made us relinquish further pursuit. But you have... Other accounts, again, from colonial sources, um, like here's how one newspaper correspondent reported what happened after Orako. Women, many women slaughtered and many children slain are amongst the trophies of Orako. And civilization in pursuit, or as it returned from the chase, amused itself by shooting the wounded barbarians as they lay on the ground. Which brings us back to where we began our story. Yeah, with Rewi Maniapoto standing on the bank of the Punyu River, watching the survivors drag themselves out of the water. You've got to think, hey, even then he must have known that this was just the beginning of many hard years for his people and the Kingitanga. Mm. Here's New Zealand war historian Vincent O'Malley again. The destruction almost overnight of that thriving Tainui economy that up until 1863 had been feeding the settlers of Auckland, that's just eliminated. And the survivors of the war retreat south of the Punyu River into the King Country District. Um, 
the population there doubles almost overnight and there's huge deprivation. There are reports of people dying of starvation um, in the middle 1860s. So that has massive ramifications. Very, very tough times. Um, Manyaputu in the hinterland, uplands of the central king country. There's not too much big, long um, flats where you could grow lots of kaias in the Waikato. Very different terrain. So the challenges were very difficult for Manyaputu um, to ensure that they were looking after um, their kin from the north. And while the Kingitanga was sheltering in the lands of Ngāti Maniapoto, the Crown wasn't wasting any time. More than 1.2 million acres of Waikato land was confiscated in the aftermath of this war. And yeah, that land wasn't just taken from tribes who had fought against the Crown, but those who had stayed neutral, and remarkably, uh, even from those who supported the Crown's war effort. I think we still live with the consequences of it today in so many ways. I think you can see it in the socioeconomic statistics for Māori communities throughout the Waikato region. In 1900, the, the government published an official return of Māori rented landless as a result of confiscation. And there are over 3,000 names on that list. And behind each name would be a whānau story of dispossession, of exile, of, of, of poverty. and. The consequences of that resonate over generations, really. The war had a deep personal impact on the leaders of Kingitanga. Tom Law says Wiremu Tarapipipi Tamihana knew that New Zealand had changed forever. He realised that this was indeed a great war for New Zealand. It wasn't just about this place in this space. The colonial powers, the colonists, it was their intent to take over the country and they didn't care to do it by fair means. They would do it by foul means. And Wiremu Tarapipipi, he recognised that finally when he saw what happened here. I feel sorry for the man. He was really heartbroken by the Waikato War and, you know, died prematurely a few years later and um, spent the last few years of his life petitioning for an inquiry into what had had unfolded. He, He sought justice, he sought the return of the confiscated lands and he was... he was bewildered at being accused of being a man of war when he was he was a man of peace and um, so you know there's a great tragedy in his story as well but there's also lots that people can learn from Moremu Tamihana who's an inspirational figure. And on the Pākehā side you know General Duncan Cameron had won this war supposedly but he was also really unhappy. He becomes really increasingly disillusioned with the war and with what his troops have been asked to do. And I think like a lot of the ordinary men themselves are asking themselves, why should we be fighting and dying in this war for the benefit of settlers in New Zealand? So they come to see it as a land grab, basically, that they benefit from in no way whatsoever. And and they wondered why the settlers in New Zealand shouldn't be doing their own dirty work for themselves. After all, Rako, 
General Cameron clearly had lost heart in what was proving to be a very challenging, worrying time for him. As for Kingi Tafio, he faced a lifetime of struggle. Waikato Tainui historian Rahui Papa says he had to lead a people in exile, managing the tensions between, you know, various iwi and hapu crammed together in the lands of Ngāti Maniapoto. I mean, that just would have been tough times. They would have been refugees, really, in somebody else's land. And it took Tafio a while to get the sort of mind shift out of the doldrums of the of the mind and into a place where they could actually discuss where are we trekking to from here. So the Raupatu became the single most devastating impact on the Kingitanga and Waikato, but it also became the single most rallying point for the psyche and the people of the Kingitanga. Um, uh, going forward. So the search, the search for redress uh, happened. Coming back after a, uh, 1881, Tafiao laid his weapons down at Pirongia in front of uh, Gilbert Meir, uh, the then magistrate at the, at the time, uh, really bringing the Waikato chapter of the, of the wars to an end. He came back and started to, to establish Manamotuhake pathways, including the Pokai, including a bank at Maungatautari, including his own communications through Te Hokioi, including his own parliament at Maungakawa. You know, all of those um, uh, things uh, were coming about because of uh, Manamotuhake pathway. So Governor Gray was never able to achieve his aim of destroying the Kingitanga. I mean, it survives to this day, right? Yeah. I mean, my grandmother was a Kingite. She's a staunch supporter. Actually, all of my nannies and uncles and kurus and the rest of them have been all Waikato and all Maniapoto. And I never really understood what the loyalty was about. Mm. And sometimes I feel a bit shy, actually, with the way that I have perceived the Kingitanga. When mm. I now know this history of it, you can see why there's such a staunch alliance with it still to this day. We survived despite everything that should have meant that we were lost. Late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a hopelessness. But the King Itanga, people like King Mauta, Princess Tipuya, and other leaders pulled us up by our bootstraps and said, don't give in. As uh, one of Tafiao's saying is, as God is my refuge, I will survive. But I mean, even though Gray hadn't completely destroyed the Kingitanga, which was, you know, his objective, he did have enough military supremacy to begin doing a whole lot of stuff um, which would really change Māori life in New Zealand forever. The Waikato War ends in 1864. Within a year of that, you've got the Native Land Court established. Two years after that, you get the Native School System established. 
So one strips Māori of, of their land and the other of their language. And those wouldn't have been possible without the Waikato War. And we live with the consequences of that today, still. The Kingitanga kept searching for justice for more than a hundred years. There were plenty of victories and disappointments all along the way. But in 1995, there was a milestone. The people of Waikato Tainui and the Crown signed a deed of settlement. It included a formal apology for the Crown's actions in the Waikato War and for unjustly branding the Kingitanga as rebels. Tainui have harboured grievances for 130 years. Today's apology took just four minutes. The Waikato Party claimed settlement bill, 1995. Presented by the Prime Minister, the bill already has the support of Parliament and now finally is signed by the Queen in triplicate. It reads, the Crown expresses its profound regret and apologises unreservedly for the loss of lives because of the hostilities arising from its invasion. It goes on, the Crown acknowledges... That the so that settlement also included $170 million in compensation for the confiscated land. Yeah, but according to the Waitangi Tribunal report, the actual value of that land, as it was then would have been worth about $12 billion when the iwi settled in 1995. So just doing some rough maths, that's like 2% of the land's actual estimated value. Less than. But, you know, anyone who's uh, worked in the treaty space knows that there's no real choice. It's not, not really a negotiation. It's just kind of what's on the table. It wasn't just Waikato who lost their lands. As we speak now, Ngāti Maniapoto are still looking forward to their apology and settlement from the Crown. Yeah, so Ngāti Maniopoto was punished for providing refuge to the Kingitanga and the iwi was also labelled rebels and through legislation lost a lot of their whenua too. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, my grandmother's grandfather was listed as a landless Maniopoto Māori in 1900. Mm. So the generations that followed, like my grandmother and all her siblings, they had pretty much nothing. Yeah, they, they lived pretty modest lives in poverty, week to week, you know, that kind of stuff. And look, like I said at the start of the podcast, um, I grew up in Kirikiriroa in Hamilton, and that city's built on land which was confiscated from Waikato Tainui during this war. And look, I didn't know much about the Waikato War when I was growing up. It's only recently I've started having chats with my Māori friends about it. One thing that my Māori mate said is that he felt a bit of whakamā, a bit of shame that he didn't already know this stuff and that I was having to, to, to tell him because I'd, you know, been doing the research for the show. I hear the same from Pākehā, you know, who feel a bit whakamā because they might uh, live on land that was, um, you know, given to settlers at a cheap price and the rest of it. And um, I always just say to people, you know, this is our past and it's warts and all. And if we address some of those big issues like disparities um, between Māori, Pākehā, and even more bluntly, racism, you know, we will be able to kind of get along and move forward more quickly. One thing I feel really optimistic about is how, as a country, we're learning te reo again, because mm. that's one thing also when you lose your land, you you lose your reo. My grandmother spoke Māori, but none of her children spoke Māori, and it's a real painful part of them not having their reo or having it kind of whacked out of them. So I feel like we're turning the corner on that too. Here at RNZ, they're doing a lot of work on the real. Yeah, and telling these stories, William, you know, like, I, mm. honestly, this is, 
if I ever get an opportunity to, to do a series like this again, I'll be very lucky. But this is a career highlight. I mean, it was really special because you did the, all the interviews for the for the show, and I I loved being able to hear the hear them. I think we're going to put up all the all of the full interviews in the podcast um, feed so everyone can hear everything that they had to say because there was so much stuff in there that a Pakeha audience has not heard before. Listening to Tom Roa, actually, I find it really fascinating how conciliatory he is. We're brought up with these stories. And what amazes me is that our parents, our tūpuna, continue to insist, utua te kino ki te pai. Pay back bad with good. That Christian message of if someone strikes you seven times, turn your cheek seven times, well, it's very difficult. For Kafia Murahi speaking from Orako, uh, the Waikato War is a story of values. We talk about courage. We talk about selflessness. We talk about compassion determination, perseverance, integrity, honour. These things, to me, represent what Oraku is about. And for Brad Totorewa, who is standing amid the par defences at Rangiriri, it's a story of unity. The Kingitanga was built on unification. And so I acknowledge all the other tribes that came through, from Taranaki, Ngāti Ranginui, to Hoi, to Faretoa, all those iwi that participated here. And our view of it today is exactly the same thing. This is a movement of unification. It's really difficult to decide how to end this series. We had quite a conversation about it, actually. We had a big wānanga. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in the end, we decided to leave the final word um, to a woman whose name literally means the pain. It kind of made sense once we had thought about the fact that she had lived her whole life uh, with as, as one of the consequences of the Waikato War. She was named after the pain of it. Mamai Takere, a woman whose whole identity is linked to the suffering still felt 160 years later and who has a message for all of us. Your ancestors killed mine and that spirit still, still hovers over me. It's still a shadow there. But I have to move on and so do you. I now have a mixed whakapapa genealogy which is Japanese which is Pākehā, and I'm very proud, I'm very proud of that. And I want a safe country for my mokobuna. I want somewhere safe where they can grow up and not be subjected to all this again. It is my responsibility as their great-grandmother to try to make a change. There are Pākehā in this country that want the same as I do. Help us. Let's work together and make these changes. Take ownership of what your tūpuna did. And don't tell me that, you know, that's all hash, that's all stories. Let's move on. Forget about that. I'll never forget about it. 
And I don't think you should either. Take responsibility. And by taking responsibility, then we can move forward. Tēnā koutou, e whakarungo mai ana. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating. Five-star rating. A review on Apple Podcasts. That's the biggest thing you can do to help more people find the show. I mean, you can always just also tell a friend. Just say, hey, you should listen to this. Or you could post a link to the podcast on social media. All that stuff really helps. You can find tons of other awesome podcasts on the RNZ website, including lots more podcasts about New Zealand history. Yeah, and actually, if you want to hear more about how Māori today um, deal with life in the shadow of colonisation, um, I'd really recommend checking out Hey Kākano Aho. Um, it's a show that sort of challenges the assumption that growing up as Māori in a big city means being disconnected from your culture, and I found it super interesting. Yeah, New Zealand Walls, The Stories of Tainui is a co-production by RNZ, Aotearoa Media Collective and Great Southern Television with the support of New Zealand on air in Mihiana Tingako Kyokoto Kato as presented and produced by me, Mahingarangi Forbes. And also by me, William Ray. Our executive producer is Tim Watkin and our sound engineer is William Saunders. Our voice actors were Tim Watkin, James Kane and Jim Moriarty. Hey Tapiriatu Kawe Wariwari. We also heard help from RNZ's Shannon Honui Thompson and Justin Gregory. And from Annabelle Eve Mather, Mahanga Pihama, and Cameron Bennett from Great Southern Television. Special thanks this episode to Nga Taonga Sound and Vision and to the Hayward Farno for providing that clip of Riwi's Last Stand for us to use. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.